Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Beth Reinwald. Beth is the founder and CEO of Flourish Homes, a transitional living home in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Welcome, Beth. Thank you so much for joining our podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm great, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you're very welcome. I'm very interested in hearing about Flourish Homes and everything that you do there for young people. Before we get into that, though, would you please share your own background and how it is that you came to be working with young people aging out of foster care? Okay. My background is as a registered nurse, and I did that for over 20 years. But I was working, doing a youth outreach in a very high-risk area and had one of my youth girls come live with me. And we also had some kids that were in foster care that would come and visit that ministry that we did. And they would be begging you to take them home. And so I just kind of got a heart for them. And then as the young lady was living with me and finishing high school, getting her driver's license, getting jobs, all these different things, starting college, people started to talk to me about doing this on a bigger scale. And so with a lot of confirmations and promptings, I kind of came into compliance. (laughs) (laughs) So this young lady that lived with you, was she in foster care? That one wasn't in foster care. Her mom had died, but she was bouncing around from couch to couch and needed more stability. Flourish Home serves those that are aging out of foster care as well as experiencing homelessness. And homelessness means different things to different people. That's something that I would like to call out. When you look at different studies that are looking at homelessness, Some people consider homelessness being on the street. Other studies highlight it as, you know, not having your own space. You might be couch surfing and you could still be considered homeless. So from your definition or your perspective, how do you define homelessness? I think homeless, sometimes it can be a toxic environment. It can be bouncing couch to couch. It can be sleeping in a car where there's just no stability to meet your basic needs. You're in survival mode where in a stable housing situation, you can start focusing on future and goals. Right. So you transitioned from being a nurse to starting an organization, Flourish Homes. And it sounds like you had the support of some people behind you. Tell me a little bit about the support that you had from the community. Was it from a church? I did. I had a lot of people from my church and a lot of friends who really came alongside me, even when that young lady was living in my home. Like they helped give you a little extra to help with groceries or this or that. People just kind of caught on to the vision. And probably the people I've known the longest here in Oklahoma came alongside me and served in different capacities to help get this off the ground. And when was that? We incorporated in 2013. And then in 2019, we actually inherited another nonprofit that was similar minded. So it took a really long time to sort of come to pass. I spent a lot of time learning about nonprofits and 
taking training and going and looking at different facilities. But after all this long, laborious wait, it was just boom, you've inherited a program. We had all the beds and computers and we had some of the paperwork. So it kind of gave us a good template to get started. So it kind of launched us. So from 2013 to 2019, you were incorporated in name only, so to speak. I know there was probably a lot of planning going on. Yes. Yeah. But I understand you didn't have a, like a location during that time. Correct. Correct. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's interesting because a lot of organizations I talk with, they start out maybe, you know, a small mentoring program and then the mentoring program grows and then they expand their services. And then eventually they get a transitional living home. They acquire one in some way. It sounds like that was like your first step was diving into the home, but acquiring another nonprofit that already kind of had the structure in place. Wow, that really helped to give you a leg up. It did. And, you know, I was working with high-risk students through a youth outreach. So I was very active in that, still working as a nurse and I kind of got married and had my little girl at that time. So <laughs> this all happened. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. So yourself, I'm curious because some people might be interested in knowing this. Your background is in nursing. You worked with at-risk youth. You had to get caught up on how to run a nonprofit. But what did you do to get prepared to work with the young people in this particular transitional living environment. I know a lot of programs, they have their staff go through trauma-informed care training and that kind of thing. So I'm interested in knowing, how did you prepare yourself and or maybe your initial staff to work with this particular at-risk population of young people who are facing homelessness or aging out of foster care? We did take trauma-informed care and we continue to try to grow and learn and do this better. I spent a lot of time with different programs, Saving Grace in Northwest Arkansas. They have been established for like 12 years. So I spent time over there touring and spending time with different departments and learning what they're doing. And I go there usually annually to a training that they do, working with other people that have homes. So just trying to look at, I visited Mercy Ministries, which is global. They serve all over the world. So just different places and learning nonprofit through the Center for Nonprofits. Okay. So a lot of benchmarking and preparing to run your own program. So it sounds like you have connections with some faith-based organizations. Is your organization Flourish Home specifically faith-based? Yes, we are. We're a Christian organization. We're not particularly affiliated with any one church and we work with a lot of different churches. Thankfully, we have tons of churches that are helping us as well as businesses and individuals. When you have a faith-based organization, Christian-based organization like yours, what are the unique challenges that you have run into getting your program off the ground as compared to maybe some non-faith-based programs? I'm just curious, is it basically the same or are there some unique issues or challenges that you had to address? I think the biggest challenge that I find is with funding. Because some of the grants and funding will not support an organization that has any kind of church or biblical studies required in their curriculum. Okay. So if that was a challenge for you, how did you go about working around that to find your funding? Really just finding the right people that that do support the vision as it is. 
And I don't know, a lot of prayer, <laughs> a lot of divine connections. <laughs> and do you find it's more challenging to find young people who want to participate in a faith-based program? Or is that not as much of a problem? That's not so much of a problem. You know, we're very clear about who we are and they get that real clearly defined. So that's not really such an issue with them. Okay. Referrals maybe though might be a little more challenging because other people might not necessarily want to refer to a faith-based organization. Or again, maybe that's not an issue. There's so limited places to go and we struggle so much with housing. I think it kind of forces us to work together, but I guess what I don't know is not, you know, doesn't hurt me, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, my perspective is we all should be working together because we have a common cause is to help these young people be successful and transition into adulthood with the support that they need to be able to do so. And whether it's faith-based or not faith-based, there are ways that we can work together and help each other and look beyond maybe differences in beliefs, I'll say. Yeah, yeah. All right. So what's the age range of the young people that you work with? We serve from 18 to 25. Okay. And just young women at this time. Okay. Are you wanting to expand? When we originally wrote, we wanted to write broad enough that maybe if we get excellent at what we're doing, (laughs) we could expand into serving young men, not, you know, not together, but (laughs) Mm -hmm, in their own homes. (laughs) Yeah. And may I ask why you started with young women? I've always, I've been so involved in women ministry and being a woman, I guess that was the most natural place to go. And it's just, uh, it's curious. I worked at Milton Hershey School, which is a residential school for at-risk youth in Pennsylvania. And I worked there for 14 years. And I was one of the individuals early on in my jobs, seeking jobs. I was working with the residential program, finding coverage for the student homes. And that would be, you know, hiring house parents, finding relief house parents and so forth. Yeah. And the toughest group of youth to cover, so to speak, to find adults who would work with them were teenage girls. <laughs> the easiest by far were elementary, <laughs> either girls or boys. And middle school, they're all squirrely. But a high school girls, that was the toughest group to find coverage for because there are some unique issues. And I think people, adults might be a little worried about perceptions and things that might not be, in, you know, certainly intended. I asked that because that's, a, <laughs> from my own experience, that might not be the first go-to. It might I'm have been nativity, that. you know. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely difficult. Our house houses up to eight young ladies, and that's a lot of hormones. That's a lot of trauma, a lot of background. Right. It can be hard. <laughs> right. Well, and you also have pregnancy, right? You have young women who are dealing with pregnancy. We don't serve young women that are pregnant at this time. We really hope to expand to that. But the way that our house is set up, they're two per room. So we really don't have the right setting for that. I think it would maybe be a different floor, a different wing or something where there's a lot of services that could be combined. But I think there might need to be some difference between singles and those with babies. I think it might be good birth control, but (laughs) I don't know that that it would be so welcomed, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've interviewed a lot of organizations and it seems like it's a greater 
I don't want to say awareness, but more programs are building to parental support for young women and young men, right? For young men who want to be involved in their child's life. Yeah. And so I see more of that support being built in. But when you have a transitional living home, it's a good point. If the space might dictate what kind of services you can provide. Yeah, I definitely hear the need. I get the phone calls and have the desire to go there. It just will have to have a different type of setting to be able to pull that off. Mm-hmm. How long do the young people stay with you? Can they stay for that whole stretch of, say, 18 to 25? Or is it a program that has a certain time limit, like it's a two-year program or a three-year program? Well, we have said we're a one-year program. So after we got started, when we inherited another nonprofit, then we had a big zoning issue. So then we finally found the home that we're in, we're renting from another nonprofit. So once we got started, we've only been operational just a little over two years. So I really consider ourselves still learning a lot. What we have found is sometimes they need longer than a year. The last thing we want to do is send them out prematurely or, you know, not ready. So we have extended that with a couple of young ladies already. So we're not for the whole entire time, but I think it's will probably be one to two years before some people are ready. Sure, sure. And what is it that you are providing for them in that time frame? They're coming in, they've either aged out of foster care or they're, you know, facing homelessness, that instability in their life. Of course, having a house and a place to live is stability, at least for that time frame. So what is it that you're doing for them to help them be better prepared and be able to live on their own? We focus on education. Some of them are, you know, finishing high school or GED. Many of our gals have started going through some programs that are kind of shorter, like CNA training, or I've got one that just finished hospitality through Goodwill. I've got a couple in college, you know, but just so that they have, so they can gain good employment. They do have to get a job within 30 days that might be part-time or very part-time if they're finishing high school. And if they're not in school, then they need to be working full-time. We focus on life skills, a lot of financial training and budgeting, as well as getting their driver's license, working on getting cars. We had a gentleman last week teaching them about good car care and what to look for when you're going to buy a used car, all those kind of things. And then we encourage professional counseling. We've had some support groups that are just for those that have had sexual trauma more from a biblical perspective, we try to stay in our lane. And if they need more professional help, you know, let them do that. And then we do some different life skills and biblical studies just to really try to show them they have value, that their past doesn't define their future, that God didn't make a mistake with them, and that he has a plan and a purpose for their life. The biblical studies, kind of going back to our earlier discussion, is this a a requirement or is it offered as like an optional? In our program, it is a requirement. So, okay. But they know that going in. They know that going in. They come, they are required to, to attend church. And then we, the way we're set up is Fridays is our class day. So basically from nine until three, we have some class times. We usually do a community lunch. Sometimes we might even just do something fun and an outing on that day. 
And it's when we have our house meetings. It's just the one required space that is part of Flourish. And then otherwise, they're able to work and do school and do everything around that within a curfew. There is a curfew. Okay. Okay. And do you have, uh, say, somebody, a minister or a pastor who supports the program? I'm curious about the biblical backgrounds of, and I apologize for all these questions about the faith end of things. I just haven't really had a conversation with an organization yet that yeah. that has that faith-based program. Okay. So I just wanted to dig in a little bit. So I'm curious about the background of, of the individuals who are working there and as far as the church background and providing those biblical studies. Yeah. I'm an ordained minister, so oh, okay. I attended Bible school. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, but we bring just different churches, different people come like that might be invited to speak. We might do a class with someone. Like I said, it's not defined to any one particular church. We work with a lot of different people. Yeah. Okay. I do have a young woman that has a degree and she does some spiritual advising, which is just completely optional. So they can, you know, just kind of share different things that are going on and she will pray with them and talk through things with them. And that's been really popular with our ladies. And it gives them that real, you know, one-on-one. Another thing we do is we do mentors. So we connect our ladies with mentors that they can spend some time just outside of this house with all these women, you know, (laughs) and get that quality one-on-one, maybe going to lunch or having coffee or doing some different outings. And that's also been really popular. And these are volunteers, I assume. Yes, they are. Okay. I know the awareness of the challenges, at least specifically youth aging out of foster care face is spreading. Yeah. And I think one of the places that is being exposed to this information I think really the scope is pretty large and a lot of churches is what I'm trying to get at is the church air is where they're hearing this message and this information. Yeah. And I think it's a fantastic way to build support for a program like yours or even to start a program because there's so many people in a church that have the heart to serve their community, to serve others. And when they find out about the challenges that young people face, they're like, well, we want to do something. Yeah. And so I think that that's growing. The awareness Mm -hmm. is growing and the movement among churches to do something about it is growing. So are you seeing the same? I am. I think it's probably one of my favorite parts about this is how the provisions come to us you know, how we've got our Christmas presents and who's doing, we have people that are doing our birthday cakes and they send me the plates and the decorations and everything Mm -hmm. to toilet paper, to feminine hygiene products, you know, and just how people will really gather around. And not only that, those with different skills or passions for certain areas. I've had a group of church ladies that were real passionate about education. So they were kind of funding that piece of, you know, if I need to buy a graduation gown or if we're getting somebody through driver's ed, which, you know, costs about $500 each to do. So just how lots of different people contributing makes it doable. Right. Well, and I think the advantage is the ability to communicate to large numbers of people Mm -hmm. that are in the same community, the church community, I think makes it a lot easier to get the word out about things you might need or activities that you're doing that they're invited to, that kind of thing. 
as opposed to not having that kind of network. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people are absolutely shocked about what things would look like for someone aging out if they didn't have a program. And you just see the shock on their face when you're talking about it. So when you go to groups of people and you're sharing about the young people you serve, Mm -hmm. do you have a young person share their experience as well? Or is it just at this point speaking about it? Because I've heard from several organizations how impactful that can be to have a young person who's gone through it share what they went through. Yeah, I've done both. We do a little bit of jewelry making in our home. And it's a way that we do some funding for the house, but also we go to a lot of conferences, sell that the jewelry, and some of the girls will attend with me and we'll be able to tell about the home and things like that. So it's been a great way for us to just get in front of the community and build our kind of following, I guess, in the community. I think it definitely endears them to our ladies. We also do like some tours and kind of a lunch and learn. On those days, they might be in and out depending on what their schedule's like. So they give a little interaction with them. Have you ever been to the Daniel Kids Conference? No. Have you heard of it? I haven't. You should look into it. It's large and it's it's specifically focused on youth aging out of the system. Okay. I went for the first time this past year and it was just a wonderful conference. Young people there, adults there, they have programs for both and some mixed programs as well. And it just, it was a great opportunity and a great experience. So if you go to conferences, that's, I mean, it might be a bit of a haul (laughs) to get down to Florida, but it might be the largest in the country. I'm not sure of that, but I'm thinking it might be. I will. I will definitely look into that. Daniel Kids for listeners to Daniel Kids. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you have staff. How many staff do you have? I have, including myself, there's seven. Okay. So we have resident advisors in the evening that come on after the business hours and they're here to help transport and maintain safety, make sure everybody's in by curfew and support our ladies. And then they stay the night and usually are headed off to another job in the morning. And then in the daytime, there's me as founder and CEO. And then I have a program coach and a program developer. Program coach works a lot on their goals and helps them with the resources and meets with them on their budgets and things like that. And then the program developer does a lot of our grant writing and she covers my weakness, which is, you know, and the admin work. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have another resident advisor that helps with a lot of the transportation and things during the day. You know, we didn't start out with that big of a staff. It's been kind of gradual, but it helps us get better and better. (laughs) Still, you know, up to seven staff in really just three years over COVID, no less. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that's pretty good. Pretty miraculous. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there was a lot of times where I was staying overnight and different things in the beginning, you know. Yeah, you do. Despite small beginnings. (laughs) Now, I know there's a stereotype of Oklahoma, like all of Oklahoma is rural, but (laughs) I know not the case. What is your setting? Are you rural? Are you urban, suburban? Oh, we're kind of, (laughs) we're on the outskirts of Tulsa. So we don't have a good bus line or anything that's real close to where we're at or safe to get to. 
but we could be in downtown Tulsa within 10 minutes. So, okay. So there are jobs, you know, you're not out in the middle of nowhere. The young people have access to yes. certificate programs, yes. the colleges and so forth. It's not too far for them to travel. Oh yeah. Like colleges are within 10 minutes, you know, a lot of things are, I would say within 10 minutes from here. Nice. That worked out well taking over this program that the location sounds really good. Well, and when I took it over, this wasn't the location. So when I took it over, it was in a neighborhood and in a rented home and they didn't want to extend that lease. So then I had to look for a house and had a neighborhood basically had found a place and a neighborhood kind of came against me for a zoning issue. And then this, the property that we're renting from is called Circle of Care used to be an orphanage. So it really was set up perfectly. And God just kind of miraculously got us over here. And we got, you know, we're able to get started. So, you know, like the house that we have has five bath or six bathrooms (laughs) and our office is connected. And, you know, it's been a great place to get started. So it was built for a program like this. Yeah. Yeah. And it was They felt like they were underutilizing the property and, you know, we were looking. So it was just such a amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think sometimes new programs are wondering, should we buy an existing house and convert it? Should we build our own? I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages to each, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. If you buy a home, I know locally there was a transitional housing home that was built here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, for young ladies, in fact, aging out of foster care. I say built, they bought a home and converted it. But then mm. you have to convert the kitchen. You have to meet all of the, you know, the requirements right. of the state. And yeah. there's a lot of work that goes into converting a home to fit and check off all the boxes. Yeah. It was kind of like coming on and standing on somebody else's shoulders to get started. So it was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. One of the things I wanted to wrap back around to is you mentioned that you have, when you're focused on education and achieving educational goals, it doesn't matter. It's not just college, right? It's certificate programs. It's maybe even getting the GED or a high school diploma too, I would imagine. Yes. Yes. In some cases, you know, but We've had two two high school graduates so far. So oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's the first hurdle. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, and that's where you say at a year, you know, you're not ready for completely. That's a minimal like to get into adulting, and then you need something to build on that so that you can self support. And so, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I myself, I was able to go to college. I aged out of foster care when I was 18, and I was. To go to college and get my BA in psychology mm-hmm. and then got a master's degree after that. So I was very fortunate that I was able to do that. I'm not down on college education at all. I know the statistics show that if you have a college degree, that overall the money that you'll make in your lifetime is greater than those that do not. Yeah. That said, <laughs> I'm feeling like at this time in this era, I mean, that was back in the 80s, right? When I got my degree. In this current era, I'm starting to wonder if getting certificates or apprenticeships or going into the trades might not be a better path for a lot of young people versus going into the debt. Yeah. 
that today's colleges and universities usually end up, you know, forcing in people to do. Now, and I'm not talking about community colleges, you know, this is your full four year and often private schools. Right. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts were on that, because it sounds like you have a mix. Yeah, what I have seen too is just those certificate programs and things that are small, obtainable successes, I think are huge for our gals. Like the CNAI program, for instance, is free. Like it included the uniform and the blood pressure cuff and all of that. But within three weeks, you can take a certification where you can make 15 an hour. That's so good for someone that maybe hasn't had a lot of successes, you know, and it may just be a stepping stone. Right. But I'll just interject that for those who may not know, correct me if I'm wrong, but CNA is certified nursing assistant. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm kind of my nurse background. No, that's okay. I worked at a nursing home for yeah. about a year when I first was trying to figure life out at yeah. the start after I got my degree. And so that's how I came to know what a CNA was. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're partnering with lots of organizations that know what the in-demand needs are for the community, for jobs, and then do the training. And a lot of those resources are free. And they do a lot of things that are helpful, like the job preparedness and interviewing and doing applications and resumes and things. And we quickly, quickly learned you cannot do that all under your roof. You've got to partner with people yeah. who are doing certain areas well. So Right, right. I think that trade schools are particularly a good way to go because there's so much in demand. Yes. People yeah. in the trade. So you're going to make good money. It's work. You know, you're an electrician, you're a plumber, you know, you're any of those lines of careers. It is work, but you're pretty much guaranteed a job as right. long as you're willing to put the effort in and you're going to make good money. Yeah, yeah. I always felt, and this is from years and years and years ago as well, that colleges and universities would serve not only their local communities and counties, but the country as a whole better if they did what you were saying. Let's take a look at what jobs are needed mm -hmm. and we'll offer degrees in those. Yeah, Right. And that way you're really helping young people get degrees that are going to be able to be applied and get jobs right away. Right. As opposed to the umpteen degrees that are offered and maybe in their area, you can get this degree. That's great. But good luck getting a job. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And now you're at thirty, sixty, ninety thousand dollars in debt and you're having trouble finding a job. Right. Oh. Sounds like a burden, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Now, again, I'm not down on college. I don't want to come across that way. I just think yeah. that in today's world, if I had to do it over again, I might think twice. I might really explore these other avenues. Yeah. Especially women in the trades. They'll snap you up. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. So we've talked a little bit about education and you said they have to work full time if they're not in school. Mm -hmm. And so do you do some through the life skills teaching? Do you do some preparation for them as far as how to find a job, interviewing skills, resumes, that kind of thing? Yes, mostly by partnering with different organizations. So, yes, we do that. OK. And one thing I have learned, success is not perfect. <laughs> it's. Like where you want it just to be very linear and upward, it's not, you know, it's, mm -hmm. I've had a whole house full of everybody's got jobs and they're 
moving right along. And then all of a sudden, these are people who haven't had jobs before and they are quitting or this or that, you know? So it's, it's bumpy sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> lots of growing, you know? I'm interested in knowing if you're seeing in your area what it seems like is happening nationally. I don't even know if it's global. It seems like there is a lack of motivation to work among young people. And so I'm curious. I mean, when I was young, it seemed like myself and my friends were like, we want to be done with school. We want to get a job. We want to be out on our own. Definitely. I can see, you know, I'm in, I'm almost, let's see, 48. So I can see a difference. Even like with driver's license, you know, where I would be chomping at the bit the day I turned 16, (laughs) you're seeing people in their 20, you know, up into 20s, not without driver's license. And sometimes I think they can come into a home like ours. It's very pretty. It's very comfortable. And there can be a little lack of motivation without sometimes some push. Right, right. Or maybe I'll say the motivation is there but for something that isn't necessarily going to bring you the money that you need to live on. So like, for example, you might want to be a reactor online. Mm -hmm. The reactors (laughs) who are very popular, they make some money. Yeah. Right. Through YouTube or what have you, but it takes a while to get there. And I think a lot of young people would love to be influencers or reactors to that level. Yeah. But it's kind of like somebody who wants to be a star on Broadway, you know, like, okay, (laughs) We love that you have that dream. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> we want to help you get there, but let's have a backup plan, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Lots of conversations like that. <laughs> oh. Awesome. Well, let's see. I'm looking at the time, and I love this conversation we're having. I do want to ask you, though, if you have any thoughts on what the system could do. Now, you have a broader range of young people that you serve, not just young people's aging out of foster care. But for our audience, it's we focus on that group. So the foster care system, do you have any thoughts on what could be done to better prepare these young people for living on their own after they have to leave the system? You know, a lot of the young ladies that I've had that have aged out, come over here on their 18th birthday, have come out of high-level group homes. And many of them have had 50 or so placements. (laughs) So there's so much, you know, there's so many gaps all over the place. So, you know, I would definitely say placement in families earlier on, I think, helps bring a lot of stability, and then maybe even supporting the foster community to foster well, you know, and walk that walk out, you know, so that those families are successful because it's not easy. And I definitely feel like we're learning a lot. And maybe someday after we get done learning, we'll help, (laughs) you know, equip other people. But so I think those are big things. Let me pause on that a little bit. You're saying foster well. Yeah. Could you maybe just clarify that a little bit? What do you mean by fostering well? Being able to, you know, where that kid's not bounced from place to place so that they can successfully stay in one place. Because I don't think any kid wants to move from one home to another. And that happens for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was in two different group homes and it wasn't anything that anybody did. It's just the first one was a, actually it was a treatment group home. 
that my sister and I went into just because there were no beds anywhere else. Yeah. So just more, you know, more families, including the church to sort of step up and help take on these families so that they're not institutionalized. They're in a family. Right. So that both of your, the first things that you mentioned really go to the consistency Mm -hmm. and yeah. I don't want to use, say permanency because it's not necessarily what we're talking about here, but at least consistency. Yeah. And not only does that provide family consistency, but school consistency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I went to four different high schools by the time I aged out. I just went in in 10th grade and ended up in four different high schools. So that educational consistency is so important. Yeah. You know, there's so much trauma. And then a lot of times you see additional trauma happens in foster homes sometimes, you know, so it just keeps like insult upon injury and it's a lot to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. I mean, the selection of foster parents and ensuring that they're caring for the young people and really right now they're only held accountable to, well, is there a roof over their head? Are they getting the food that they need? Are they not being mistreated? Right. Those are kind of like the three check marks. But on top of that, social workers are overworked. Yeah. And so keeping up with the families is difficult. So it's such a challenging situation to be able to turn that around. And it's hard to find foster parents. So it's really, you know, I just wish I could wave a magic wand and make it better. But goodness. Yeah. Where do we start? (laughs) You know, and then I Like even I'm hearing that there's a lot of foster kids that are, they're getting together and then having families and it's just continuing to perpetuate. So I think really building the foundation of families, working on that at all levels. And then, you know, one of our biggest things has been zoning, you know, zoning issues. So I feel like there needs to be legislation for these aging out to be able to be in just regular residential neighborhoods without being, that was just shocking. I was so, you know, you're so zealous for, and you, you believe you're doing a good thing and you're trying and just to have people come against you just for that, it was really eye-opening for me. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, it's something that people have in their minds. It's a misunderstanding of what behavior they're going to see from mm-hmm. a program like yours. Yeah. You're victimizing the victim. Yeah. And we have, you know, alarm system and we have curfew and it's very quiet, very calm. There's not crazy drama happening, you know, <laughs> so... Not that they couldn't happen in with a different population yeah. of young people. But if you're talking about young people who are facing homelessness or aging out of foster care, that that's a leap that people shouldn't be making, but they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's knowledge. It's awareness. Yeah. And I think if they were in neighborhoods and they got to know them, you know, I mean, there's just such those people that can step in and be the grandparents and the aunts. And all those things, I think they would be really endeared to them if they had exposure. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think those are good thoughts for helping to improve the foster care system. I always like to end with some solutions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Not that we can necessarily do it (laughs) ourselves, but if we as a community across the country come together and advocate, maybe. Yeah, work us out of a job, you know, like it would be a great thing. (laughs) 
I'd love it. Well, I think we're at the end of our time, but I want to give you an opportunity to share your website and okay. where people might go to send donations. Okay. Our website is at flourishhomes.org. And we're also on Facebook, which is Flourish Homes and Ministries. And we're on Instagram and some of those other platforms that I'm too old Mm -hmm. to really, you know, (laughs) deal with. (laughs) I know I'm not on Instagram either (laughs) or Snapchat. I'm 55. I'm like, I am (laughs) not quite there yet. (laughs) But I learned, I see a lot of stuff here. I learned a lot from our young ladies, you know. (laughs) Sure, sure. Awesome. So if anybody wants to donate to your organization, go to that website. Yes. And we have a donate button. So, okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I thank you so much, Beth, for joining us for our podcast series today. I've really enjoyed talking with you and hearing about your program and hearing about you as well. And I wish you all the best as you continue to work with these young ladies and maybe expand in the future. I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. For those who have listened to the end, thank you very much. We really appreciate you tuning into our podcast series. We try to put one out every couple of weeks or so, so you can check back at agingoutinstitute.org and click on the podcast link, or you can get our podcast pretty much on any site that distributes podcasts these days. So thank you very much for listening. Until next time.